It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, this is Yossi Klein-Halevi, and I'm a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem. Today is Monday, November 9th, and you are listening to For Heaven's Sake, the podcast of the Hartman Institute's I Engage program. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Neil Hartman, president of the Institute, and myself will be discussing an issue central to Israel and to the Jewish world. Then, Alana Steinhain, director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish texts can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our intention is to encourage a respectful conversation across political lines, promoting mutual understanding and strengthening Jewish people. Our topic today is healing divided societies. The victory of Joe Biden has ended one phase of America's internal schism. But the deep wounds that have turned America into two effectively warring societies, mutually hostile to each other's culture and politics, remain open and untended. Last week, we marked the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. We in Israel are going through a new cycle of internal unrest. There are even warnings of another political murder this time from the far right against anti-Netanyahu demonstrators who've been attacked in the streets. Prime Minister Netanyahu claims that his life is being threatened by incitement from the left. Meanwhile, though, the violence is coming from his supporters. In America, acute anxieties linger. After a summer of violence, many Americans are bracing for further social upheaval. How worried are you about violence in Israel, in America? And what differences do you see? What similarities do you see between our two societies? I am worried about violence. I don't know which society I'm more worried about, but I'll start in Israel. One of the great dangers that we face here is that every group assumes that the one who's at fault, the one where there's a danger, is the other side exclusively and as a result doesn't do any internal analysis, any internal cheshbonefesh or assessment of what's wrong in my society. You spoke about Yitzhak Rabin. We completely wasted the murder of Yitzhak Rabin as a growth moment in Israeli society because we pointed fingers. You did it. Your group did it. And no group said, one second, is that danger, is that a potential inherent in my society? So whenever there is such profound hatred and animosity, and there is no 
self-reflection about the way I am conducting the conversation, but it's only about the other one. When that's the language, danger is inherent because the only way to avoid danger is to assume that within my community, that danger is also possible. And then you do something, you do something to uproot it or to minimize it. We are in the mode of protecting ourselves from the dangers of the other, rather than asking what responsibilities I have at this moment. And when that happens, we've lost a core check and balance for moral behavior. Now, without being in America, I sense that same, that same mode of how do I protect myself? The danger is outside. And when that happens, political violence is, is this close. Now, when you speak to friends who are in the Biden camp or the opposite, each group can make a compelling argument about why they have a right to feel existentially threatened, no less. The debate in America, which, which really reminds me of Israel of the 90s, has become existential. Now, how do we get to the point where we can help people who truly feel and really can make a compelling case for why they're right to feel that way? How do you help people step out of themselves and not just see their own fears, but also the fears or the aspirations, for that matter, of the other side? Because that's what's missing today in so much of political discourse. See, you're just pointing out why the danger is even greater. Not only are we not doing the nefesh, the question of what do I have to correct, the other one is not just threatening me with violence, he or she is threatening my society. My America, my Israel is under threat. Now, when that happens, and you don't assume the potential of violence within your community, this is a just war. It's a war of self-defense. When you can even use that language. How to heal? I think that's one of the great challenges of our time, Yossi. I would pose this in general, and, and let's try to figure out how do we do this in Israeli society. How do we break down the core assessment that the other is an existential danger. Is there any space to begin a process of differentiating? For example, my politics aren't important, but there is an Israeli politician who happens to be prime minister of Israel for quite a while, who I, who I profoundly disagree with. When somebody starts, you'll see that he's an existential danger, we're lost. But I know, for example, that I don't see Prime Minister Netanyahu as an existential danger for Israel. And one of the reasons why I don't see him as such is that for over five years, I have habitually, publicly said good things about him. I've pointed out where he's helping. So I tried to get to a place where I don't present it as an existential danger. It could be that it's too early and I don't want to get into American politics and whether it applies. But overall, if Republicans and Democrats if people on the political right in Israel and the political left in Israel cannot fulfill that mitzvah of saying something positive about the other, then you can't heal our societies, yes? You can't. It's interesting because one of the sources of the problem today is that people are no longer being exposed to media that give them a nuanced perspective. They're only reading or listening to media that reinforce their pre-existing uh, rage and angst. So for example, we all know the problem with Fox News, but in the last year, 
The New York Times has not run a single op-ed by someone explaining why he or she is voting for Trump. Now that's 48% of the country has had no place on the op-ed page of America's most important newspaper. As a former journalist, I find that offensive. I find that a blow to the integrity of my profession. And you know, when I became an Israeli, I moved here in the summer of 1982, when you were fighting in Lebanon, I was trying to become an Israeli. <laughs> and because I had come to Israel at the lowest point up until then in our internal relations, we were tearing ourselves apart. Not only did war no longer unite us, but it was the war that was dividing us. I mean, you remember that summer, reservists would return their equipment after their tour of duty and go as a group to the prime minister's office to demonstrate. We'd never experienced anything like that. And, and I realized that I'm going to need to start paying careful attention to what both sides are saying, because that was my way of becoming a responsible Israeli. And so I started reading two magazines. I took subscriptions to two magazines. One was Nikuda, the magazine of the settlement movement, and the other was Kotera uh, Rashid, the magazine of Nahum Barnea, which was quite left. And I would read the same events filtered through these opposing states of consciousness. And that's, that's how I became an Israeli, by internalizing the left-right schism. So you've given another halacha. One halacha could be force yourself to find something on the other side that you could say something positive about. Now, I took it upon myself to do it in the case of Netanyahu. And actually, once I did that, I found it not so difficult. Because while I disagreed with him, there were tremendously positive things he did. Whether a person could do that about Donald Trump or not, I'm going to leave to America's side. But to do so about Republicans, to force yourself to see another perspective, find something, that's one halacha. Now, the second halacha is make sure that you read or access information that doesn't reinforce your positions alone. I would sharpen it by saying find the columnist whose opinions you completely disagree with, but who is the smartest articulator Good. of that position and read that person. Right. Now, will this overnight heal the societies? No, it's, it's a process. It's a way to walk. Halacha is a way to walk. What about leadership? What's the responsibility of leadership? You know, here we get really stuck very often. Very often I find that when we go to leadership, it's about excusing ourselves from our responsibility. And so I actually don't like to talk about leadership. Again, it's a form of not taking ownership over my own problems. I, I believe that our leaders deeply reflect our society. So it would be very easy for me to say our leaders should speak differently and all of the above. Leadership could heal, but if it's not, it's our job as a society to take responsibility to heal. I think our leaders play on what we want to hear. And I think, therefore, I don't want to blame the leadership. How about rabbis, Jewish community leaders? Okay, that level of leadership I take responsibility for. The rabbinate is precarious because our constituents, they want us to be the news site that they exclusively listen to. So how does a rabbi personify precisely that complexity which we want our community to personify? And I would say, be explicit about it. Explain what you're doing. I think at this moment, both in Israel and North America, both of our societies recognize 
that we can't continue this way. We recognize this is not sustainable. So when people recognize that it's not sustainable, I think there's an openness to something. And I think leadership has the possibility of stepping forward and modeling. I think being explicit about it and modeling what it is that they're doing and inviting people to that higher ground. Beautiful. Let me suggest two more halachot here. The first is reflecting on one's own camp's shortcomings, failures. And the other is to take a deep breath, step back, and separate politics from theology. Politics is not infallible. Politics is not Torah Misinai. And what's happened as we've lost our faith in Revelation, we've transferred some of that infallibility to our political opinions. And that, I think, is partly responsible for the inability of people to self-reflect. Politics has become uh, an animamin. This is what I believe. It's an article of faith. It's really interesting. So on that article of faith, and we spoke about this in the past, our tradition even says on articles of faith, these and these are the words of the living God. <laughs> even when it is an article of faith, there are more than one legitimate way to live. Good luck explaining that <laughs> to uh, Biden and Trump supporters. <laughs> no, but I think it goes back to what you're saying. You know, we're all aware of the tenor of the debate, both in Israel and North America. Even though it was personal about the persona of who is going to lead, etc., there was a very deep sense that the future of my country is on, is on the line. And when that's the case, it's very hard to say these and these are the words of the living God. I wish it was theological. That's why it's so critical to find places where even if a certain person you might believe is of critical significance, that you find a place where you could say not every disagreement, not everything is an existential issue. And the ability to reach that space I think is, is a key factor for the potential of healing. Where does the role of empathy come in? Can empathy be drawn on when you are feeling existentially threatened? Can you feel empathy for the other side that is existentially threatening you? I would say that Avat Yisrael really love for the Jewish people and all of its maddening complexity is something that I'm able to draw on to help force me to try to understand the other camp that I feel is threatening my well-being or is threatening the well-being of the Jewish people. The harder move is when I step outside of the Jewish people. And I've been having, as you know, I've been having conversations with Palestinians for the last two years. And that's more difficult. Conversations about our mutually exclusive narratives, which go to the root of our legitimacy. And what I find is that I'm able to step out of myself to some extent if I feel I have someone listening to me. When I feel that, that it's all one way, my capacity for empathy shuts down. And so there needs to be some minimal reciprocity. Now, I'm perfectly willing to make that first step. But if there isn't a reciprocal step, my ability to continue to dredge out empathy from myself becomes more and more limited. Is there a way to de-existentialize our ideological differences? And the more we're able to do so without becoming parev or without becoming non-ideological, 
How do we have serious ideological intellectual debates without them becoming existential? I think that's where the halachas that we speak about are, are so critical. How do we de-existentialize these debates? Because as long as everything is existential, it's all self-defense. So, Danielle, let's turn what you've just said into another halacha. And that is that one needs to be very careful about indulging in an existential language. Now, that one's hard for me. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a, in a Holocaust survivor home, and existential language was what we had for breakfast. <laughs> so this really is a, is a tough one. But people need to ask themselves 10 times before they identify an individual or a rival camp as an existential threat. I will try to adopt that. But for it to be a halacha, there has to be something that you have to do. So there has to be a way of preventing you from getting there. There has to be certain words you don't use. You don't refer to millions of people in the other political camp, for example, as deplorables. That's not going to advance civic discourse. That would be correct. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, Alana Stein Hain will be joining us. Hi, my name is Alana Steinhain, and I'm Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Faculty at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I want to tell you about a series of talks I'll be giving over the next few months called Talmud from the Balcony. Talmud from the Balcony is an occasional series that exposes big ideas, questions, and issues motivating rabbinic discussions. Our theme for the upcoming sessions will be Beyond the Limits of Law, Repairing the Fabric of Society. As a society, we rely upon unspoken norms of behavior and responsibility, and yet few of these norms are legally enforceable. I'll be delving into the ways the rabbis address this gap between law and character. To register for one or more of the talks, go to our website, shalomhartman.org, and look in our Hartman at Home calendar for Talmud from the Balcony. Thank you and looking forward. Alana, welcome. Good to be here. What words from our tradition do you have to uh, help us deepen our understanding of the process of healing? Well, before I get to words from our tradition, I want to add one halacha, if I can, which is to return to first principles. I think the conversation that's going on in America is a question of what is our shared narrative? To what degree is democracy and its institutions part of that shared narrative? To what degree is the difference between truth and falsehood part of that shared narrative? And to what degree is science and scientific research part of that shared narrative? And what that means is not simply asserting that somebody else is not doing what they should, but asking what that shared narrative demands of all of us, which means if you care about the difference between truth and falsehood, you care when you're saying something false, not only when somebody else is saying something false. So there's a lot of work to be done there. That return to first principles is deep in the American conversation right now. But Ilana, just as I hear you, correct me if I'm wrong, each one of the examples were the examples of the first principles that so-called the right wing is not accepting. So aren't you reinforcing the whole problem? Are there first principles that you believe Democrats or your camp is violating? Because if their first principles is about the other person changing, yeah, I, I actually think that when it comes to democracy, as well as truth and falsehood, there are first principles. It's both sides. You have to ask yourself, 
why you're saying that when Hillary Clinton didn't win, you wish the electors, the electoral college would just flip. But when Trump doesn't win, oh, it's anti-democratic that they would flip. You have to ask yourself whether truth and falsehood means being fully transparent about what you say when you're critiquing another perspective and what you just add in because you think that'll add some, I don't know, fuel to your side of the debate. Science is something else, but I think that democracy and truth and falsehood. And I do think that there are good people on both sides who want to see the distinction between truth and falsehood restored and the institutions of democracy restored, and they have to work together. The Torah that I want to bring in here is I want to talk about a term that shows up throughout the Bible in Tanakh in interesting places, and that term is Yad Ramah, a raised up hand. And I'm going to get right to it by looking at some verses in the book of Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, that's discussing what happens when an individual transgresses. And it says the following, and I'm going to read it for my excellent Seinzelt's translation here. If one person will sin unwittingly, that person will present a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. The priest shall atone for the unwitting person when that person sins unwittingly before God to atone for that person, and it will be forgiven. So that's when a person sins unwittingly. Now to verse 29. Just know that it applies to the native of the children of Israel and also it applies to the stranger. Verse 30. What about the person who acts high-handedly, biyad ramah. Whether they are a native or a stranger, that person is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be excised, shall be cut off from among their people because that person has scorned the word of the Lord, violated God's commandment. That person will be excised. Their iniquity is upon them. Now, it seems to be that there is a difference between when someone sins unwittingly and when someone sins with a high hand, so to speak, with a raised hand. Now, what, what does it mean when a person sins with a raised hand and that person should be excised? There's no korban, there's no sacrifice you can give, you can't fix it. What did you do so wrong that you have to be excised? Now, remember, this is in the context, not just of any sin, a deeply ideological sin. Idolatry is the context. And the commentators discuss, you know, Rashi suggests maybe High-handed means you're premeditated. But I'm actually more compelled for our moment by people who suggest that high hands means you're being exhibitionist. You're being demonstrative. I want to stick it to people. What we call in Talmudic language, lahachis, or in regular everyday parlance, lahachis. I'm trying to make somebody angry. I'm trying to show them and demonstrate that they do not have power over me. In this case, it is a person trying to demonstrate that God and the entire Torah system does not have power over them. Yad Ramah, a raised hand, an exhibitionist hand, is what I am seeing on both sides right now in the political discourse. It is about sticking it to the deplorables. It's about sticking it to the libs. Whatever it is, it has to be very clear that I am rejecting your power over me. And at the same time, when we look at this term, this very same term, which here in Bamibar 15 is so negative, it's so problematic. You know, there are other places this term is used. I'll give you a very prominent example. 
Exodus chapter 14, verse 8, the book of Shemot. And God hardened the heart of Paro, king of Egypt, and he, Paro, pursued after the children of Israel. For the children of Israel went out, left Egypt, you got it, Biyad Ramah, with a high hand, with a hand raised, exhibitionist, righteous demonstration of who we are and what we believe in and what's right. So I actually think that Yad Ramah in its ideological context has such depth for us in this moment, because on the one hand, many people who are standing up and being defiant, what they're trying to show is my ideology matters. The values matter. I'm walking out of Egypt with a high hand. But what the other side sees is you're just trying to do things you're just trying to do things to spite me. And it, it's the self-same. When it's yours, you're walking the Yad Ramah of Egypt. But when it's somebody else, they're committing a Yad Ramah against you. And that's how I'm seeing it so far in our discourse. Wouldn't that then be tragic? Or it's inevitably tragic because I'm obligated to be Yad Ramah. Since it's such a deep ideological statement, I want to express my ideology. So how do I overcome my ideological passion? Let me give you one more instance of Yad Ramah for a second, just to shape this a little bit. You have Yad Ramah elsewhere as well. The book of Micah, Micah, chapter five, verse eight. I don't know about you, but we didn't learn the book of Micah, Micah in school, but you know what? We should have. That's the best. <laughs> we should have. We really, really should have. In my adult life, I come back to, fewer Tanakhic books, fewer biblical books than Micha for its incredible visions of what society should actually look like. And in Micha, you have this verse, short verse, let your hand, God, be lifted up, tarom yadcha, same thing, yad ramah, against whom? Your adversaries. And let all your enemies be cut off. Yad ramah is not for the people of your community. Yad Ramah is for your adversaries. We need to figure out a way to compellingly discuss our visions, our narratives, our values that is not about proving that someone else doesn't have a hold on us, is not about trying to get someone else's blood to boil, is not about vanquishing. That's for your enemies. And I think that to me is what pulls you back from being exhibitionist for exhibitionist sake. I'll give you an example. There were people dancing in the streets in Midtown Manhattan on Shabbat. How do I know? I don't need to watch the news to know that. All I had to do was be sitting with my kids in my house and hear cheering outside. I said, oh, they called it for Biden, got it. Those people who are dancing in the street, dance in the streets, show what you care about, that's fantastic. But people who turn that as expletives on the other side, people who turn that into a spit in the face of someone, that's a problem. That's what you do to your enemy. That's not what you do to the people with whom you're trying to build a society. There's a deeper question here. And that is, who is part of my society? What we're seeing happening in America and, and to some extent in Israel as well, 
raises the question of whether these national identities that we take for granted are really artificial constructs. Am I building a society together with ultra-Orthodox Israelis? I'm not sure. Ask the people dancing in the streets outside your window, are you building the same society with Trump supporters? You may not get the answer you're hoping for. And so what this moment is really raising is a very basic question about how do you determine, how do you define who is part of me and who is, yes. who is extraneous to me? As I was thinking about this whole experience, I'm so reminded, Yossi, of what you said in our podcast a few months ago, I guess, at this point, where you said we need to renew the covenant with the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. There's something covenantal that's broken there. And this is why I go back to first principles. I want to try to figure out, are there some basic first principles that people can agree with, even if they're pushing against each other in terms of how they're going to use those principles as tools to get to the kind of society that they wanna see. You know, someone said to me the other day, this was fantastic. It was actually, I think it was somebody who was a listener on this podcast, or maybe our civic symposium, says, you know, it should be the Yankees versus the Mets, not the Yankees versus the Southerners, right? I'm a Mets fan. So if you ask me, it should never be the Yankees, but that's its own problem. But there's something to the idea that we're all playing in the same game, which means we share rules fundamentally. We share something. And I want to try to figure out what that is. I want people to work on what that is and if that is. I share what you're saying, Ilana, and I don't think it's as broken, Yossi, as you say it is. Because when President-elect Biden beautifully says there are no red states and there are no blue states, there's only the United States, his audience cheers. You use the word Ahavat Yisrael, you know, that what corrects you, your claim and obligation of loyalty. I think there still is that claim. That's maybe what Ilana's talking about, getting back to first principles. There are principles that everybody recognizes. This is the United States. This is the state of Israel. There is something that's gone broken. The question is whether we're going to, number one, articulate those principles and not assume them, because when you assume them, they disappear. And then how do we act, using your example of Yad Ramailana, how do we act in such a way that we don't turn the other into an enemy? One of the reasons why I love halacha, halacha has its pluses and its minuses, but when you regulate behavior, there's this famous principle that what you feel is influenced by how you act, not the opposite. It's a leap of action changes the way you feel. And if you change the way you behave, maybe we could start getting rid of some of those layers that are covering our first principles and get back to a certain level of healing. Because right now, of course, that's the problem. We can't heal our society if we're acting in such a way that we're not a society. Act in such a way that the other can have a truth. Act in such a way that you could see limitations of your own. Change the way you over-idealize your opinion. Act in such a way that you're aware of how the other one sees you and don't treat them like your enemy. Those are all practical ways of changing the core assumption, Yossi. Are we a community? Are we not a community? So a time, hopefully, for healing. For heaven's sake, is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, and music is provided by SoCal. 
To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, and you can write to us at, for heaven's sake, at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Thank you all for listening.